On the TV show MASH, Corporal Radar O'Reilly once had to take a test. His commanding officer asked the questions. What is 258 plus 374? And Radar wrote down the Gettysburg Address. Then, what was President Lincoln's most famous speech? And Radar wrote down 632. Well, it turns out Radar had peaked at the test, but memorized the answers in the wrong order. Have you ever asked someone a question, only to get what seems like the answer to a different question? Well, something like that happens at the end of Job, and today on Groundwork, we'll wonder why. Stay tuned. From Words of Hope and Reframe Media, this is Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, we're now on Program 5, the final episode in a series we've been doing on the book of Job. And so, of course, just to recap, uh, so far in the series, we've seen how the setup of the book is some odd, we admitted, a wager between God and Satan uh, to see whether Job's faith was only based on the good stuff God did for Job or whether Job just loved God for God's own sake. So Job first loses all of his possessions and family, then he loses his health, but he doesn't give up on God. He's got lots of questions. Uh, he laments. He's not sitting quietly, but he doesn't give up on God. Four friends show up, uh, and they try to convince Job that his theology is wrong and theirs is right, and they try to convince him that Job did something bad. And anyway, you know, better to be a good person than a bad, because wicked people are always miserable. Job doesn't buy any of that. He even, as we saw in the previous program, says some amazing statements of faith along the way. But through it all, we've not heard a word from God. And what Job really wants and what he keeps coming back to during the course of those long discourses is a chance to ask God his questions. Right. He he wants to be able to see God. He says to God, now, I, I know you're going to have to take it a little bit easy on me. I don't want you to blast me. I don't want to be destroyed just by entering your presence. I don't want to be scared so uh, silly that I can't even open my mouth. But I want to be able to talk to you. I want to be able to argue my case even with you. Even if you kill me, I still want to I, I, I want to do this. And at the climax of the book, the great and amazing climax of the book, God says, okay, God shows up. God appears and speaks with Job. And what, a, what an appearance it is. The whole book so far has just been Job literally sitting on an ash heap on the ground with four friends around him. It's a very, very quiet book. Not much is happening. But now, all of a sudden, in chapter 38, uh, it's like a Steven Spielberg Hollywood movie with special effects. This huge whirlwind, like a giant tornado or hurricane or something, shows up and roars across the prairie toward Job and his friends. And out of the whirlwind, God speaks. And he says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. So Job wanted to question God and God says, no, I'm going to question you. Yep. Uh, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely, you know, who stretched a measuring line across it on what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels of God shouted for joy. What a, what a beautiful line that is. Yeah. The morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy when God created the universe. 
But in some ways, God's answer is a little odd, and it's going to get odder yet, as we'll see in just a moment. The whole book has been saying, you know, why is there evil, God? Why do bad things happen to good people? And God's going to, in answer, God's going to give this giant tour of the creation. Now, in one sense, from what you just read, Dave, we can understand it. God is putting Job and his friends in their place, right? We said on a previous episode, what is the theme of Job? Right. God's God and you're not. God is God uh, and you aren't. You didn't create the universe. Could you have done that if you'd even tried? So in one sense... Uh, uh, or, or were you even there? Yeah. Uh, right. Nobody was there. Did, I was there. Did you set the galaxies to spinning? Huh? In the beginning, God. Right. No no people at all. Uh, so I'm God. You're not. That part we get. But then for a long stretch, things go in a different direction. And here's a sampling of that from God's voice out of the whirlwind now from Job 39, where God says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for pastures and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? So, yeah, what's with all the animals, you know? And, and actually, it goes on from there. God starts to talk about Leviathan and the sea monster and the hippopotamus. And uh, it, it makes me think of a line in a Charles Williams novel. Charles Williams was a, a Christian British writer and novelist a great friend of C.S. Lewis, some say his best friend. In one of his novels, he has a character say of this very passage in Job, as a mere argument, there's something lacking perhaps in saying to a man who's lost his money and his house and his family and is sitting in the dustbin all over boils, look at the hippopotamus. <laughs> right. So, yeah, what's going on? I mean, we have been uh, throughout most of Job with his friends almost in. Uh, now, we've said all along in this series that the book of Job is not academic. It's not ivory tower. This is real life. And one of the reasons we relate to this book is we've been Job or we've been in the position to try to comfort a Job-like person whom we know. But there is a sense in which a lot of this could have taken place in the theology classroom in the seminary. It's very deep theology. There's a lot of wrangling, a lot of arguing about philosophy and theology, and uh, the whole thing is what we call a theodicy, which is from the Greek theodikis. How do you justify the ways of God to people. Mm. Uh, how do you explain? That's what theodicy is. So this has been a theodicy. You and I both went to seminary. We've heard these discussions in seminary classrooms or in coffee shops after class. So how is it that at the end we end up at the zoo? Yeah. Um, right. How, how does the discussion all of a sudden focus on mountain goats and donkeys? Yeah. So theodicy is the issue. And uh, there's a, actually an old German hymn, a chorale, Was Gott tut ist wohl getan. What God does is rightly done. Every That's what theodicy means. Everything that God does is right and good. And we can't accuse him of any wrongdoing or evil. But in response, instead of saying, well, here's what I'm doing, Job, and here's the reason why, right. and here's why all of this makes sense, as you'll see if you look at it from my perspective. Instead, God begins to speak about what we could call the fecundity of creation. It's teeming with life. All these different creatures, and they 
they have life in themselves. They give birth, and God knows how that works. And God is, it's like he's saying, life, 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 l'chaim. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is the author of life, and, and life fills the world that he created. And that's how he begins his response to Job. It, it is a bit puzzling, and we'll think some more about it in just a moment. Did you know the original Hebrew name for the book of Numbers was In the Desert? Numbers tells the story of Israel's time in the desert wilderness as they wandered for 40 years before entering the land God had promised them. It was a difficult period, but it provided many lessons for reinforcing faith. And the biggest lesson was that God was with them all along the way. Join today in July for a series of devotions on the book of Numbers titled With Us in the Wilderness. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And we are looking today in this final program of a five-part series on the book of Job at what God finally has to say when God arrives on the scene in dramatic fashion in like a middle of a tornado or something, starting in Job 38. And Dave, we were just saying that most of God's fairly long reply to Job and to his friends involves a tour of creation. And here's just a short list of some of the creatures God mentions. Mountain goats, wild donkeys, oxen, horses, hawks, eagles, storks, ostriches, the hippopotamus, whales. Yeah. What's that got to do with anything? Right, there they are. Well, it has to do with the richness of creation. One of my theological professors in seminary wrote a little book about Psalm 104, actually, which Mm -hmm. is a wonderful psalm of creation, also a wisdom psalm, that he called the garment of God, the world, the universe as God's garment. It isn't God itself. Uh, We're not pantheists. We don't believe that God is coterminous with the creation, that he's the same as the creation. Uh, We believe that he is above and outside the creation, but the creation points to his glory. It tells us something about God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And it's like this magnificent robe, this garment that God wears that he drapes himself with. So we can learn something about God by looking at the richness of the creation. My professor too, John Steck, called creation the glory robe uh, of God. Um, And so Here's an instructive point for us, particularly, I think, in the modern world where we tend to live very often disengaged from the creation wonders. We spend our times looking at computer screens and walking in malls uh, inside man-made, human-made fabrications. We don't connect to mountains and to storks and to ostriches, except maybe once in a while we go on vacation. But so here's something instructive for us. To us, It seems odd that God would answer these deep theological conundrums with a tour of creation. Uh, The grandeur and the majesty of creation has something to do with everything, it turns out. We just don't always see those connections. Yeah, you know, one of the facts of our modern life is light pollution. We live in cities. We light up our cities at night. We light up our houses. We can't even see the stars anymore. And ancient man always was overwhelmed when he looked up at the night sky, man or woman. They looked up at the night sky, and to see those starry heavens was to make them begin to sense the wonder of the greatness of God, the God who could create all that. And then down to the minutest level on earth, insects and little creatures and creepy crawly things, God made it all. That's 
a key thing to remember about him. Yep. There's this wonderful IMAX movie that came out a few years ago called Cosmic Voyage. It begins uh, with a close-up shot of a couple in Grant Park in Chicago out having a picnic. And then the camera starts pulling back until you can see, you know, all of Chicago and then all of Lake Michigan and then all of the, the world. It pulls back to the edge of the universe. Then it zooms back in and does a close-up of the man's hand and goes down to the molecular level of our cells and everything going on inside our bodies. God made all of that. And, and he didn't just make it, Scott, and then leave it. Right. I mean, he's still running it. He's got his finger on the pulse of a gazillion things at once. And because of that, because the world is so complex, because the universe is infinitely more complex than just our little world. We can't make these direct, simplistic connections. A leads to B leads to C. Therefore, this is what God is doing in your life. It it just doesn't work that way. And what God is saying to Job, therefore, with this majestic tour of his grandeur in creation is, look, if you can figure all that out, if you can figure out how I manage all that, if you can figure out how I designed all that, then we have a level playing field. You want to talk, Job? Let's talk. God is saying, I think maybe just possibly the playing field isn't quite level here Um, you you can only conceive of right simple formulas two plus two equals four a leads to b because of c but it doesn't work that way what's interesting is of course job never hears from god look here's what happened satan and i we have this bet yeah and nope job never gets that explanation job died without knowing what we readers are told was some weird stuff going on behind the scenes all job is told is there's some weird stuff going on behind the scenes, yeah. but trust me, I got this. Right, and in fact, in chapter 40, we've read from 38 and 39 little bits of it. Here's something from Job 40, beginning at verse 8, where God actually does get a little more confrontational with Job. So he says to him, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Wow, how many people don't do that, huh? Uh, they condemn God to justify themselves. I didn't deserve this, God. You're, you know, you blasted so and so. And the Lord goes on. Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like His? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so he says, you want judgment? Try it. Yeah, you do it. Yeah, you uh, do it. You, you deal with wicked people. Go ahead, unla- un- unleash your fury on them. See, see if it even makes a dent. It's complicated, God is saying. It's complicated. There are more things going on in heaven and on earth than you could possibly conceive of in your th- philosophy, uh, to quote uh, Shakespeare. So, yeah. uh, you, you know, and here's another thing that complicates it. If God were really going to set everything to right and punish all the evil in the world, he'd have to start with us, wouldn't he? Maybe we need to step back and let God be God, as we've said uh, several times. That's the message of of Job. Which is ultimately what Job does. So now we come to the final chapter of Job, chapter 42, where Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Oh, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you answer me. Well, my ears had heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Yeah, so Job gets right back down into that dustbin, 
Now he's laid his hand over his mouth. He doesn't want to talk back anymore to God. He doesn't want to have any more questions or encounter with him. He repents, kind of gets low, just realizes, boy, you know, I was talking about things I didn't really understand, and now I'll just be quiet. And, you know, I think I have the, I have this feeling that what happened in Job uh, 38 to 41 was not only that Job was uh, hearing these things from God, but that God swept him and his friends up and took them on this tour like they were on some flying carpet or something yeah. and actually took them on this cosmic tour, which just left them like, like the IMAX theater. Yeah, it just left them numb everything that they had seen. So God sort of sweeps them up into this whirlwind, shows them all these created wonders from the morning stars that sang for joy at the beginning, right on down to the donkeys and, and the whales and the hippopotamus. Uh, and then God plunks them back down on earth and says, well, and they say, I got nothing. Yeah, I got nothing to say. But that is not quite the end of the story of Job. And uh, we want to look at the way the book does end in just a moment. glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork and this final program in a five-part series on Job, final segment of this final program. And Dave, we just saw that after this majestic tour of the grandeur of creation, God has basically said, I did all that. I'm doing all that. I'm maintaining all of that. If you can figure that out, then we're equals and we can talk. And Job says, nope, we're not yeah, equals. Right. I got nothing left to say. I'm I'm sorry. I even asked some of the questions I, I, I did ask. So Job ends in this posture of humility. I don't think that negates all the things he said uh, earlier in the story. After all, we're told the whole story. So, you know, his laments, his cries, his demands for explanations and reasons, those are all legit, and uh, they stand. They weren't taken out of the story. But in the end, just this sense that God is so much more than we could imagine, that God's ways are not my ways, as the prophet Isaiah Mm -hmm. would put it. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's that could be written over this ending part of Job, right. too. And Job acknowledges that. He recognizes it. And though we believe all these good and true things about God, God is just, God is good, God is righteous, God is loving, God is merciful, in the daily, day-to-day uh, craziness of life, in, in the chaotic things that can sometimes happen to us. We can't always work out the whys and the wherefores. And Job tried to do that and then kind of apologizes and said, I I just, I'll never have enough data. I'll never know enough to make sense of this. So I'm sorry I bothered you, God. But God smiles at Job and God is not angry with Job. And and remember, Job has gone on trusting God through this whole time. That's the key thing. He's, even when he doesn't understand, even when he is angry, he still trusts. God's not angry with Job. However, 
uh, in Job 42, verse 7, we read, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job, sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. <laughs> now there's a turn of events. <laughs> yeah, right. So they've been accusing Job. They've even gotten angry with him and called him wicked things and bad names. And now it's they who actually stand condemned of wrong, and Job has to pray for them to get them off the hook. Job stands in the gap for them. Right, and they offer these sacrifices, lavish sacrifices, to sway God's wrath and and avert it. Yep, that's grace. Uh, The book ends with a note of grace that God does forgive. He's not angry with Job in the first place. He forgives the friends for misspeaking. Job prays for them. It ends on this really lyric note of grace. Uh, By the way, we should notice that fourth friend, Elihu, isn't mentioned here at all. And I I don't think anybody's exactly sure why. I can't imagine he was off the hook with God because he basically said most of the same things that the other three did. So Elihu kind of shows up late, speaks late, and then drops out of the picture at the end. I'm not sure anybody's quite sure why. Yeah. But then there's a coda. After Job prays for his friends, after God apparently forgives them, accepts Job's prayer, suddenly we read that Job gets everything back, and it's kind of doubled. All the animals that he had lost, he gets bigger herds, and the family that he lost, he has more sons and daughters. And again, there's a almost a, a parabolic sense to this. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine in a, a real-life story that, oh, Job suddenly, he gets over his boils and he goes back and and starts having kids again. Uh, happily ever after, uh, it's Right, there. it's a, almost a fairy tale ending. But not quite a fairy tale ending. It's not quite a happily ever after ending, is it? Job will not forget the pain of the past and the pain of what he lost. And we even read uh, near the end of Job uh, 42 that even though God heals him, God restores him, still when his extended family comes, they still have to console him because there are those moments when he still remembers the first 10 kids and it kind of catches up with him. So the pain lingers And Job is chastened. He's a changed man. Uh, His faith never went away anyway, but he's chastened. He's humbled. He knows what the score is now. Could you call it a happy ending? Not in the Hollywood sense, uh, not happily ever after fairy tale sense. It's it's maybe a deeper thing. Maybe it's a joyful ending. And there's a difference, as we talked about in a Fruit of the Spirit series. There's a big difference between happiness and joy. Well, suffering does mark us. Yeah, we go on. We can adapt, we can adjust, but it leaves it leaves a hole in our lives. I mean, if a child dies, having another child later doesn't make up for that loss. You can learn to sing again. You can learn to laugh again, but there's always that sense. And, and that stays with Job, too. So that, too, makes Job true to life, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. despite all the rather unusual events of this book and, and some of the things that sort of stretch our imagination— it rings true. And I think that's why, as we said, it's not just a great book in the Bible. It's a great part of human wisdom, of world literature, because these are human questions that the book struggles with. And it's a divine answer, really, that the book offers, this sense of God's greatness and goodness. And I've often thought 
the best way for us to deal with these questions of our lives and with the struggles of our lives is just to remember the childhood prayer that we learned so long ago, God is great and God is good. And if we can hang on to both of those things, we're kind of on the right track as far as Job and the Bible is concerned. Job is not finally given uh, an explanation. He's really, he doesn't really get his question answered, but here's what he does learn. That so long as there is a God who created the Pleiades star cluster and the mighty humpback whale and the majestic bald eagle, so long as that God exists, there is ultimately an answer at the end of the cosmic day for all that is happening. And, And God will find a way. And we believe now as Christians through Jesus Christ and the resurrection, God will find a way to restore us and to restore the whole creation. He will make all things new. Well, thank you for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Dave Bast, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to dig deeply into the Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. Connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you and tell us what you'd like to hear next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media in partnership with Words of Hope. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our studio relations manager is Christy Prinz. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob, and our executive producer is Stephen Coster.